Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I am your host, Lauren Burke. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And this is the first episode in our new season that will be exploring activism and race in 19th century, 19th and 20th century literature. That's right. And boy, do we have a lot of interesting stuff coming up for you. We've got the long-awaited passing read-along, episodes on Lydia Marie Child, Harriet Jacobs, Pauline Hopkins, uh, interviews with some Broadview Press editors. I'm finally going to read Wuthering Heights, Get Ready Team Bronte, the applesauce oh that I've heard so much about <laughs> is coming. We're bringing you applesauce. But before we get... <laughs> But before we get into all of that, uh, we're going to talk about everyone's favourite pal, everyone's favourite drinking buddy, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Take a shot. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we're opening this season with uh, HBS. And if you've been listening to Bonnets of Dawn for the past five years, you probably know all about her. Honestly, our girl <laughs> comes up all the time. Not only did she write the best-selling book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, but she was also pen pals with George Eliot, related to Louisa May Alcott and Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and uh, communed with Charlotte Bronte via Ouija board. And we're still trying to get those transcripts for you guys. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, those are my three favorite facts, I think, those last three about HBS. I don't know. What, what about you? What can you tell us about her, Hannah? <laughs> Yeah, here are some dry facts. Here are my three favourite dry <laughs> facts. Uh, Harriet Elizabeth Beecher was born on June 14th, 1811. She was the daughter of a very prominent Calvinist minister named Lyman Beecher and Roxana Foote Beecher. And according to 1995 Pulitzer Prize winner Margot Jefferson, Roxana died young after bearing 13 children and was immediately turned into a household saint of whom it was said she never told a lie or spoke an angry word. And mm. I think that's really important to remember when we talk about this week's novel. Mm, yes. So not an HBS fact, but just, you know, sowing some seeds. Uh, mm -hmm. When HBS was 21, she and her dad moved from Connecticut, where she was born, to Cincinnati. And for those listeners that are less familiar with American history or geography Ohio is in the north and was a free state and just on the other side of the Ohio River from Cincinnati was Kentucky where slavery was very much legal and I remember when we went to Kentucky for the first time Lauren and we like passed all the bridges and stuff in the river and you were like that's mm -hmm. Cincinnati and that like that's freedom so last year I was staying with some family in Columbus. I It was like my first time out of the house in like yeah. two years. <laughs> and I was just dying to visit a literary home. You know, the only one I really get in my immediate area is Hemingway's. Yeah. So I was like, you know, let me, let me pop down to Cincinnati while I'm here in Columbus, make a visit to the HBS house in Cincinnati. And, um, you know, speak to some people there for sort of a mini road trip experience. But I have to say, it's not the same without you, Hannah. It made oh, me miss you. It was, thank it made you. me sad. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, um, you know, I have a little bit of audio from that mini road trip for you guys. Bear in mind, we are recording via masks as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know. You, you, it, it might yeah, be a little rough, us, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to hear a little bit of audio um, between me and some volunteers at the Harriet Beecher Stowe House in Cincinnati, as well as uh, from the executive director, Christina Hartlib. So she came here with her father. He had 11 children. His first wife, Roxana Foote, was Harriet's mother. She died when Harriet was five. And he did have a total of three wives after losing his wives. Uh, but 11 children, four daughters, and seven sons. His sons all became ministers. His daughter, Mary, was the oldest. 
And she's the only one that never lived in Cincinnati because she was already married and stayed in Connecticut. But the rest all came here. Her older sister, Catherine, had had a school in Connecticut, and Harriet attended that school. Uh, interestingly enough, they were all very educated. It was unusual then for women especially to be educated, but Harriet and her, and her sisters were all educated in like the classics and all of that math and all of that. Um, her sister Catherine actually established a school for girls in downtown Cincinnati when she was here and Harriet did help at times teaching. She actually wrote a book, her first published book was a geography for children. So the things that we like to talk about are the things that probably uh, influenced her to write Uncle Tom's Cabin. She probably would have never written the book if she had not lived in Cincinnati for 18 years. In Connecticut, I'm sure all over the country people knew slavery existed and knew about it, but uh, in Cincinnati we were a free state right across the river from a slave state, and apparently the river was even shallower and narrower than it is now. Oh wow. So people, we had a free black community, and there were race riots, and there was a lot of racism. The poor whites, you know, thought their jobs were being taken, mm -hmm. kind of typical stuff. And there were a lot of enslaved people coming over with their masters. There were slave catchers looking for people. There was an immigrant community. There was just a lot of turmoil in Cincinnati at that time, and she was able to witness this. Harriet's youngest sister, Isabella, uh, became really a staunch suffragist, and that was her life's work. We have a little exhibit about her. We got that right before the pandemic closed us down. It was 2020, 100 years since women got the vote, so we <laughs> had that. And she died in 1908, so she didn't uh, live to see women get the vote, but that was really her life's work. So Theodore and these uh, seminarians went on and on with these debates. Harriet and her sister sat through these. This was probably the first time she really had any idea of how passionate people were, what you know, all the implications were. There was one African-American seminarian by the name of James Bradley. And he had been formerly enslaved. He had worked for years to uh, buy his freedom. And he came to the seminary to become a minister. And he was able to tell them exactly what it was like. Because there were seminarians from the South who were not really happy about you know, all this talk either. Mm -hmm. uh, the townspeople, the business community, uh, however they felt about slavery morally, they really had a, a business interest. We were. Before Chicago became the hog butcher of the world, we were porkopolis, and we had lots of pork production and distribution, and they sold their products down south. Because the slave plantations, depending on the state, were you know cotton, rice, sugar cane, so they imported things like pork. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the lesser um, cuts went to slave diets. So they wanted the status quo just to stay the same for the economic reasons. Right. So, this was a big deal. They didn't want the seminary to lose money. Uh, when, when Lyman came back, he was unhappy, very unhappy, and told the students they were not to talk about abolition at all. He really censored them, and they were furious. So 45 of like 50 seminarians left, and they went to Oberlin College in Oberlin, Ohio, which was a really abolitionist liberal place, and, and still is a very liberal place today. So there were only about five left, and the seminary limped along. And actually, I don't think it ever was financially very viable. It lasted 100 years. It lasted until 1932, and it was absorbed by a seminary somewhere in Chicago, actually. Uh, and I think buildings were probably sold off over time and then eventually torn down. But the seminary lasted, even though it didn't have, uh, it didn't have a lot of uh, support after that. But that was her first real real experience. I think, you know, a lot of things probably happened to her. She probably saw a lot in 18 years in Cincinnati, but we just kind of know some highlights that she would have written about or that we know she experienced. So Harriet wrote, she was, like I said, educated and enjoyed writing. She wrote an article uh, for a competition and she actually won $50. And after she won this competition, she was invited to join the Semicolon Club, which was a literary club in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And there were some famous Cincinnatians, uh, Salmon Chase, who went on to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and Secretary of the Treasury, was one of the members. And Daniel Drake was a prominent physician who established General Hospital in Cincinnati. And these people, there were men and women, but these were educated, prominent people that belonged to this society. And uh, she belonged, and this is where she met Calvin Stowe and his wife Eliza. She became very good friends with him, but there was a cholera epidemic in Cincinnati around 1834, 35. Cholera was pretty rampant at times. 
throughout, I guess, most of the country for contaminated water. There was a gentleman in Cincinnati who was a furniture maker. His name was Henry Boyd, and he actually uh, advocated boiling water. He thought that maybe that would help. He was a formerly enslaved African-American, so no one really paid much attention to him, even though his family didn't get sick. But Eliza Stowe passed away from cholera, and about 18 months later, Harriet and Calvin married, and they married here in this in this room in January of 1836. And they had uh, they had a total of seven children. The six were were born here in Cincinnati, and the first were twin girls born in the house here, and they named them Eliza and Harriet after his two wives. <laughs> I know that's the reaction you that usually get. Yeah. <laughs> so, but. Uh, during this time, she was invited uh, by a student, uh, she and her sister Catherine, to visit their farm in Kentucky. Well, on this farm they saw this, they had slaves. And she witnessed a slave auction, which really made a profound effect on her. That was one of the main things that stayed with her. Another thing, there were race riots in Cincinnati in 1836 and in the 1840s. Uh, a friend of hers who published an abolitionist paper, The Philanthropist, was dragged out into the street, beaten up, his printing press was thrown into the river. All of these things happened that also, and she did write a political piece to the paper about that. She was, you know, outraged by that. She um, often wrote to help support the family. I'm sure Calvin didn't make a lot of money as a minister, and he traveled a lot. He was kind of a biblical scholar. He traveled to buy books and to speak. So she would have off and on probably been here living in the house with her family. Mm -hmm. But at home, she was writing. She was taking care of kids, keeping house. So she uh, employed housekeepers sometimes, a German immigrant, an Irish immigrant, a free black lady. She did have someone who she thought was free who was enslaved and found that the slave catchers were after her. So she and her brothers helped this woman get to get to an underground railroad site, which is north of here. It was called the Van Zandt Farm. Now, our house was not part of the Underground Railroad, and she was not part of it, but she was a friend of it. And she knew spots, she knew how to help people get to where they needed to go. I just want to say that I really encourage you all to visit the Harriet Beecher Stowe House in Cincinnati if you have the opportunity or um, join them online. I think it's like $30 a year. They do a lot of really excellent online events. Um, and one of the things that I really like about the HBS house is um, that they're not just really like focused on Harriet and her writing and her family, but they also cover a lot of, you know, Cincinnati history as well. And we're going to just like listen to a little bit more from the HBS house um, and also hear about their mission, which I'm like totally on board for. Cool. And, the, and the one thing that I would say, you know, a lot of times people look at literary homes as like a place of, it was the shrine to this particular author. And that's not how we view this at all. It is, a, you know, a historic site that has all of these social reform and social progressive connections and we want to continue that dialogue mm -hmm. so it's not just you know well that happened almost 200 years ago right. no we are still writing the next chapter mm -hmm. so that's all part of the whole idea here at the Harriet Beecher Stowe house mm -hmm. that's very cool good gift shop by the way oh really really yeah really good I didn't really go big the gift shop isn't banging that's the rule. Right? A, a plus. Like there were plenty of books that I could have bought in there. Plenty of pencils and key. I mean, I was just like, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me take all of this stuff. Um, the one thing I was looking for was a hard copy of Lady Byron Vindicated, mm. uh, which I found and I picked up and I was going to purchase it, but then I overheard a group of volunteers having a very like spirited discussion about pink and white tyranny, which they had all just read for their book club. Mm -hmm. And those strong opinions were like coming at me. And I was like, ah. <laughs> I can believe I, it as well with that book. I can see that yeah. dividing some people. I was like, I've got to pick this up then. Okay, let me look at this. So I picked it up and I read the preface, which is amazing. 
And I just like absolutely had to buy it. And I was like, no matter what, Hannah and I actually have to discuss this book. So Hannah, can you read some of this preface for everyone so so they know what I mean? My dear reader, this story is not to be a novel as the world understands the word. And we tell you so beforehand, lest you be in ill humour by not finding what you expected. For if you have been told your dinner is to be salmon and green peas and made up your mind to that bill of fare, then on coming to the table, find that it is beefsteak and tomatoes, you may be out of sorts. Not because beefsteak and tomatoes are not respectable viands, but because they are not what you made up your mind to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, never yeah. a true word was written. <laughs> I'd be pissed. <laughs> If someone's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I feel like um, this preface is like the preface of a, like a seasoned author who is like really dealt with some criticism. Oh, definitely. Uh, it also reminds me of like whoever is writing the Amazon descriptions for David Lynch movies. Oh. Like they say things like, this is not a movie, but a film experience. <laughs> I, that's anyone trying to get anyone to watch a David Lynch film. I was once, <laughs> I, this is so embarrassing, but I was like fully in love with this boy once. And um, I just, I watched every David Lynch film with him in like the space of oh. a week. Oh, I've, I've been there. So anyway, anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Pink and White Tyranny is a novel experience. See what I did there? Oh, yeah. Ba-boom. Um, I would call it an anti-romance. Mm -hmm. Also, maybe a satire? Mm -mm. Question mark? Question, question mark. mark. Yeah, question Lots mark. of question marks, I think. Yes. Um, I think it's funny in certain spots. Yeah, definitely. And it's like really like snappily written. Like it's a different writing style from Harriet. I'm just not sure that Harriet and I are on the same page as far as like who we are laughing at. But mm -hmm. let's let's get into that because it's it's interesting. Pink and White Tyranny tells the story of John Seymour, a wealthy young man who marries Lily Ellis, a professional belle. I think she's a self-described professional belle as well. Mm -hmm. Like she knows what like her business it. is. Lily is spoiled and selfish and very aware of it. And she marries John for his money and for the status that he's going to give her. John is, I think, uh, willfully blind to Lily's oh, faults yes. and very much reaps what he sows. Yeah. Yeah. The novel explores the way their mismatched marriage affects their lives and the lives of everybody around them. Every single person they encounter is just, yeah. They're caught up in it. Mm. But you know what? That feels realistic. There is a, there are couples that you you're like caught up in the drama of their relationship. I'm always and caught like, up in if like if I was their neighbor, <laughs> I would just be like, "Oh, come and come and tell me all about it over a cup of tea." <laughs> Honestly, like I was making fun of the neighbors in my brain at one point because they were so like they just couldn't stop talking about like their furniture and like all kinds mm. of things. And then I was like, "You know what though? I would be that neighbor." So 100 percent Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a few things that I really appreciated about this novel or, you know, not novel. And one of them is that Lily Ellis is a 19th century real housewife. Like yeah. she is that younger housewife who's like newly married, who joins an already established cast and is just giving <laughs> the most. <laughs> She's hiring French decorators. She's kicking your sister out of the spare room. She's wearing couture. She's not teaching Sunday school. Mm -hmm. John, no. no. Look at the woman that you married. No. Um, and yes, she will be throwing expensive and scandalous parties with your money. So I think like if you're like us and you love 19th century literature, and reality television, then this book might be for you. The other thing that I think is really interesting about this book is the like, sort of distance that we get from the characters and the way that each chapter in the beginning sort of sets up a different relationship problem between John and Lily and then doesn't quite resolve it. So you're left with this like lingering sense that these two people are are not quite going to make it and you're waiting for it to fall apart. 
Which is, yeah, which is again, like every like episode of The Real Housewives. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think when I was reading it the first time, I was like, oh, there's this real Reddit, am I the asshole quality mm. to it. And for those of you that don't read Reddit every night before falling asleep. Or doesn't have um, Lauren sending them to you. <laughs> like, I always wake up to your late night, am I the asshole posts. I'm like... Uh, I have such a good one to send to you, actually. It just, it's a <laughs> I still can't go for the sandals one. So if you don't know, um, Reddit, you know, Am I the Asshole? Just a forum where people write in, like, their relationship problems to ask millions of people to judge them. <laughs> whether or not Everyone they are. Everyone is the asshole. I think for, like, the first few chapters, I was just rewriting, like, the first paragraphs, like, into, like, the Am I the Asshole, like, headlines. Mm-hmm. Basically, so things like, um, am I, 27-year-old female, an asshole for insisting that we serve wine at my party, even though my husband is an advocate for temperance and has actually made a really big deal out of making sure that all of our friends and neighbors don't drink? I mean, that one was, that one was tough. Like, John actually won Mm. that battle, but... I do think he was kind of an asshole for never telling his wife that he was anti-alcohol. Yeah, you'd think he'd wear his, like, temperance t-shirt on, like, one of their dates, Mm. you know? Especially in the beginning when she's a party girl. Yeah, but he doesn't think that she's a party girl. He doesn't. He does think that she's, like, much, much younger at first. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, there should be an am I the asshole for lying to my husband yeah, about my age. Yeah, am I the asshole for telling my husband that I uh, am seven years younger than I am and that my parents forced me into society when I was a, a preteen? Am I the asshole for trying to cancel the annual party my husband throws for his child laborers? I'm sorry, employees. <laughs> so every year on his birthday, I'll read this as Lily. Every year on his birthday... My husband throws a fancy party for his employees to show his appreciation for all of their child labor. I think it's sweet, but I want to cancel because we've just remodeled our house and I don't want the furniture to get dirty. Plus, I think they would just rather have the day off anyway. The last point, though, yeah, I do think that they would absolutely rather have the day off than just like have to hang out with John on his birthday. I don't know. You've seen you've seen Downson Abbey. Those people don't want a day off. (laughs) <laughs> they want to keep going they just want to <laughs> oh my lord <laughs> I, well, John just like he should get a life I think she's right when he she's like you know you should enjoy your birthday you don't need to hang out with your employees you don't need to force your employees to hang out with you can I tell you a secret though I think John hmm. would be writing that I'm like the asshole post yeah I think he because yeah, he like I totally he goes would. I mean they both do it but John goes back to his sister who he knows is going to agree with him and is like eh Am mm-hmm. I the asshole for marrying someone completely different to me and then like expecting her to change? So I also noticed this distance between the narrator and the character, but eventually it did start striking me as like patronizing, a little mm-hmm. condescending, shall I say, you know, paternal. I think that's why it was making me think of work to begin with, because I I mm. thought that work was like really uh yeah, Louisa May Alcott in that is like deep into her. Like, I've been writing for children's magazines and she's like, can't quite shake it off. And that's what I was getting a lot of from this. But mm-hmm. then I realized that I was like, oh, it's a man. A man is telling me this story. That's why I feel patronized because the narrator is male. And it's never explicitly said that he's male. But every now and then you get these little moments of narrative voice where the character will say, well, the narrator will say something like, love, my dear ladies, is self-sacrifice. It is a life out of self and in another. Its very essence is in the preferring of the comfort, the ease, the wishes of another to one's own for the love we bear them. Love is giving and not receiving. Yeah. Come on, tell me that's not a dude. So I did, um, I was trying to, there is nothing about this book on the internet. Mm-mm. It doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. I had to look online. I even, like, I looked on JSTOR and stuff to just see what I could dig up. Very little was coming up. Lots for mm-hmm. her other stuff. Um, 
So before she wrote Pink and White Tyranny, which was published in 1871, she wrote this other book on the subject of women's suffrage called My Wife and I that appeared weekly in the Christian Union between November 1870 and 1871. And that is everywhere. And one of the anecdotes I read about that book was that she, apart from Uncle Tom's Cabin, she got more letters about my wife and I, and angry letters, I think, than any other other thing that she's written. So Pink and White Tyranny and my wife and I, there's a lot of similarities. And Mm -hmm. one of them was way more famous. So I think that's why there's not a lot on this. Okay, and so I'm guessing Pink and White Tyranny is definitely the response. It's the response to the criticism because Harriet loves to respond to criticism (laughs) with another book or an article. Mm. Like This is her thing. That makes sense, definitely. And what made the male voice in Pink and White Tyranny particularly interesting to me is because I'd seen it described as satire, I was like, oh, okay, you know, it's not quite serious. But actually, the more I read about my wife and I, the more I was like, oh, this is just her opinion. So in the essay, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Harriet Beecher Stowe's multifaceted response to the 19th century woman question by Amy Easton Flake, it was suggested that the reason she's relying on the male voice was because of her experience with the backlash to your favourite, Lady Byron Vindicated, which Mm -hmm. kind of showed her that men still had a much greater liberty to just talk on controversial subjects. And uh, this is, maybe this is like a stretch, but, and it's in this essay, but... The main character and the narrator of My Wife and I, so a definite male voice in that one, and then like a suggested male voice in Pink and White. But the main character in My Wife and I is called Harry. Okay. Harriet, come on. Mm-hmm. Come on, guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then the other thing when I was reading this essay is that it pointed out, well, it mentioned that in My Wife and I, there's this anti-George Sand sentiment which is all through pink and white tyranny so it's like she wrote these two books to be like i hate the french so (laughs) in my wife and i there is one of the characters says i would not if i could do as george sand did put on men's clothes and live a man's life anything of that sort in a woman is very repulsive and disgusting to me and so, yeah, all together, I just mm. think that like this male narrator of Pink and White Tyranny is maybe a little less tongue in cheek than I wanted to think. I just, I think Harriet Beecher yeah. Stowe is like, this is my opinion. I'm writing it under a man's voice and you can like say what you want about it. I think it's really interesting to me um, that she's actually making a comment about George Sand here, you you know, wearing men's men's clothing mm. to essentially move about freely in life, mm-hmm. and yet Harriet has been adopting a male's voice to yeah, move about freely exactly. in her writing. Exactly, she can't she can't parse it. Hypocrisy. That's the <laughs> that's the the big that's my big takeaway basically from Pink and White Tyranny and Harriet Beecher. <laughs> So if like we were to adapt it for a modern audience, we would love to use that male voice mm-hmm. because it's hilarious because <laughs> it's so wrong and it's just going to add to the comedy. But perhaps she's being sincere. Like there are so many times in the book where I'm like, what is going on? I don't mm-hmm. know. Harriet, what's happening? But I think I think I don't think Harriet knew. I think she wanted to be funny, but I think that mm-hmm. that opinion is creeping in. I do just want to point out that while I was reading it, I also um, made a lot of notes on the like anti-French sentiment in the book. Oh, and I was I like, know. which book is more anti-French, Villette or Pink and White Tyranny? I also, I was like, who hates the French more, Harriet Beecher Stowe or Charlotte Bronte? So, <laughs> <laughs> But what's also weird about it is that, well, I knew that Charlotte's dislike of the French was genuine, but I didn't with Harriet when I was reading this. Mm. So I was like, is this... Is this a joke, right? Because, like, why are people so concerned Yeah, that someone went to a French ball? Like, I I couldn't tell if it was, like, everyone else was hysterical or what was interesting it was is sincere. Just on the back of the flip-flopping conversation as well, because there's, like, a point where all of this, like, anti-French sentiment is, like, running through it. And then right towards the end, it's like, 
and she wore her lovely Paris dress. And I was like, oh, do we hate the French? Or do we not hate the French, Harriet? Tell me what to think. <laughs> I got to say, for so much of this book, I was flip-flopping on whether it was satire. And here's why. So on one hand, you have the narrator making, again, sincere question mark mm-hmm. remarks like, Fashionable life contrives at last to grow a woman who hates babies and will risk her life to be rid of the crowning glory of womanhood. And that sentiment is kind of repeated multiple times. All the way through. Yeah, it's like a real like the rejection of motherhood as just being like unnatural. It's not okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Women should be punished for it. it. It's all the French. It's all the French to to blame Mm -hmm. and there was another and also just like parts and actually jack's reaction so i read this bit that i'm gonna read to jack and he went yeah fuck that person (laughs) and i was like no this is good right but i think maybe he just felt attacked by it so (laughs) this paragraph really stood out to me uh it would be well for all of us if we did put into words plain and explicit many instinctive resolves and purposes that arise in our hearts and which, for want of being so expressed, influence us undetected and unchallenged. If we would say out boldly, I don't care for right or wrong, or good or evil, or anybody's rights, or anybody's happiness, or the general good, or God himself, all I care for, or feel the least interest in, is to have a good time with myself, and I mean to do it come what may. We should be only expressing a feeling which often lies in the dark back room of the human heart and saying it might alarm us from the drugged sleep of life. It might rouse us to shake off the slow, creeping paralysis of selfishness and sin before it is ever too late. That is beautiful. And it's so sincere. Let's keep it 100. Yeah, it's very sincere. And I know you've got a note in here just for us about another quote that's going to come up later on about how that's like the thesis of the book right and for me that paragraph I was like this is what she wants to say and this is Mm -hmm. why Lily is such an amazing character because she's all of those Harriet's trying to embody someone who is just like I don't care but the key part is she's not acknowledging it even to herself that that's what she's doing Mm mm-hmm A hundred percent. And that, yeah, that is what she needs to lean into, Mm -hmm. honestly. There's way too many distractions in this book, and that's why we're flip-flopping. But I think you're right. I think that if it isn't the thesis of the book, it should be. Yeah. (laughs) We're like, Harriet, write this book. (laughs) Write that book. Nail that ending, honestly. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, yeah, because there's like, there are these times in the book when Harriet really had me convinced that she was trying to say that, like, marriage and men are rubbish because mm-hmm. of the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Like, John can't learn and he can't grow because he's so stuck in a particular mindset. And he's right simply because he's a man. But he's also unhappy because of this mindset. Yeah. <laughs> and nothing's working out. And then you have a character like Lily who weaponizes her beauty because that's her source of power. That's her only source of power. She's not allowed to have a career she's not allowed to do anything else so um there's another line i'm gonna bring it up again later but someone really clocks lily and it's really not even about lily it's about how men perceive her Mm -hmm. and treat her and they say it seems to me that lily is exactly the kind of woman that you men educate by the way you look on women and the way you treat them so Mm -hmm. like you've created this problem (laughs) <laughs> also, I do think Harriet Beecher Stowe is very sympathetic to Lily. She's sympathetic to her intellect, to her ability. She holds her own in society. She's not even like she just sits there and doesn't know what people are talking about. She says, like, if Lily was born a man, she'd be a great business person. You yeah. know, she's like, she Absolutely. really, she goes to bat for Lily. But I think that's leaning into the, well, it's exceptionalism, which we'll talk about. Right. So Mm -hmm. Lily's different to the other women and she just hasn't like turned her mind to it. So it's still a criticism of. So Lily is not like a bad person, but Lily's actions need to change. I would say in the first two thirds of the novel, 
it seems like all of the married couples, especially the the central married couple, you know, are like they're miserable. Like mm-hmm. the men are, you know, preoccupied with really how they're going to like turn these women into Stepford wives, honestly. Mm-hmm. And to me, I was like, oh, gosh, the only person that's really thriving in this book is John's spinster sister, Grace. <laughs> Uh, but Grace is so gross. I hate Grace. <laughs> Grace she is, like, is worse than Fanny because <laughs> she well, admits so, that she loves her brother. <laughs> so when I was reading, so I think it's interesting, like when you were reading the book, you were like, the narrator is Harriet, which I'm on board with now. But when I was first reading this book, I was like, I think Harriet is Grace. Hmm. I think she's yeah. like the moral center of I think this both, book. I think both of those statements are true. Because <laughs> Harry doesn't know what she's saying. Because she's she flipping off in. <laughs> We're both right, Laura. So, <laughs> like, so Harriet tells us at the beginning of the book that Grace is the model of like perfect New England mm-hmm. womanhood. She's sensible, she's curious, she's kind, she's, you know, godly, she's sympathetic to her brother. And sacrificing um, to and her brother. sacrificing, yes, 100%. And, like, what I kind of also like about her is that she pretty much minds her own business. Yeah. Like, she listens to the problems, and she's, she's mm. like, she gives, like, you know, all right, yeah, maybe you guys should just try to listen to each other. Yeah. But even when she's listening, she's like, I wish you wouldn't like come here and shit talk his wife to me because he married her. (laughs) Yes. He picked her. He did. You just got to get on with it, John. Come on. Uh, I guess I just like, there was a point in the book when I I felt like HBS was almost saying that, you know, you can't be your own person in a marriage. Mm. If you're a woman, (laughs) if you're a woman, you really need to give it all up. You need to give it all up for motherhood and, you know, supporting your partner, unless you're Grace, who's mm. single and independently wealthy. Like women like Grace, they get to live their best lives. Women like Lily, no, 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 no. But of course, I think everything falls apart in the last third of the book. And when we like actually take a look at Harriet's views on marriage and women's rights. Yeah, the more you know. The more you know. So for context, um, Harriet's older sister, Catherine, actually co-founded the Anti-16th Amendment Society, named as such because suffrage would have been the 16th Amendment, with three other women. Now, they argued for reform to the marriage, divorce, and property laws and collected 5,000 signatures in support of this. But they did not feel women were suitably educated enough to like warrant actually giving them the vote. It's a sentiment that reminds us of uh, maybe a couple people. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe a couple of people, definitely. A couple other people. And that's no, that's no mean feat, right? Like 5,000 signatures in those days, like they're campaigning mm-hmm. and that's the yeah. thing, like actively, like wholeheartedly believe in what they're saying. They've got mm-hmm. the support. They're like, we love women. Like we want them to... Mm-hmm. You know, we want them to be safe in marriage. We want them to be able to divorce. We want them to be able to own their own property. Here's 5,000 other women that also feel like that. Yeah. But not suffrage. But, you know, maybe they're not ready to vote. That's all we're saying. They're just too, they're not, they're not educated enough. They're okay? not educated enough. The women aren't smart enough to vote. Mm-mm. But then, mm-hmm. so on the other hand, you have the younger sister, Isabella Beecher Hooker, who's fully entrenched in the suffrage movement and participated in founding the New England Women Suffrage Association. So she's all for it. Mm. She's like, this pink and white tyranny, what are you doing? What are you doing, Harriet? (laughs) So meanwhile, Harriet, who is not involved with either of these endeavors and in 1865 pens an essay for the Atlantic that argues that instead of opening new realms of possibility to women through education and the right to vote, the focus should be instead on making sure they know how important the realm they already exist in is. So stay in your lane, ladies. Don't you, that comes across so strongly in Pink and White Tyranny. 
Like, so... It really does. It's really like, hey, we don't think women should suffer, but also, like, you should just want to... You should want to be a mum. Being a mum is great. Mm-hmm. She does, however, say that women should be allowed to enter any field she had a natural organization and talent for, but... Yes, this is exceptionalism, like George Eliot. Most women, most in bold, mm. should not be elevating themselves above their station. But some, like her, like George, they can. And this is why there's never going to be a Team Eliot t-shirt. And as much as we want to play this drinking game, I'm not wearing a Team Stowe t-shirt. It's not happening. <laughs> Uh, one yeah. thing about the sisters, I can't, I don't know. She had loads of siblings. I'm struggling to remember so how many. many of them were were girls. But definitely Catherine, Harriet, and uh, Isabella, right? There's 10 years between each of them. Mm-hmm. Catherine is older than Harriet. So it goes Catherine, Harriet, Isabella. So between Catherine and Isabella, who are probably the more extreme of the two, Right. And then Harriet's mm-hmm. like there in the middle. There's 20 years between these women mm-hmm. in one family. And so really what we're seeing is a generational difference in their approach to being a woman and womanhood and women's rights. And that mm-hmm. that is really interesting to me that by the time, yes. you know, like t- times are changing with like even yeah. within the family, even within a very like activist family activated yeah oh yeah absolutely they're all they're all engaged in activism and in different parts of activism as well yeah and her brother um henry uh was the editor and owner i think of the christian union that my wife Mm -hmm. and i was published in so they're all putting they're all involved in the machine putting all of these like these opinions out there but yeah that age difference i think really struck me just in terms of like what an interesting time to be alive. Yes. And like, I'm glad that you brought that up too, because I also feel like there is this natural, almost uh, middle sister in Harriet who's mm. always trying to find a compromise, but she's not keeping in mind like that. She just can't get out of her own worldview that there are yeah. women that are not like white and middle class mm-hmm. and <laughs> don't have the same opportunities and supportive and loving family that she has as well. Well, 100%. And also yeah. the other the other thing, um, her approach to like women's education and saying like, not all women can do these things. Some women can, and the women that can should, but not all women can. Mm-hmm. Um, it helped me understand why Harriet uh, felt like she should write Uncle Tom's Cabin and why mm-hmm. she thought that she could solve racism in America. Yeah. Because she was an exceptional woman. Right? Does yes. that make sense? Like her mindset of like why she would even contemplate that that was a thing that was within her wheelhouse. I will say because I was reading uh, Pink and White Tyranny for this season, right? And because it was mm-hmm. Harriet Beecher Stowe, <laughs> I've got to admit, I was reading it and I was like, when are we getting into it? When when's that slave trade coming up? When is right, Lily thinking... gonna admit that like her family's money comes from a plantation? Or I was just waiting, and mm-hmm. I think I got to like two hundred and fifty pages in, and I was like, I don't think it's happening. No, and this I is wrote the book. a note. This I was like, why did Lauren pick this book? <laughs> I think because as I was reading it uh, with that mindset on, I started to notice a lot of similarities to Mansfield Park. Okay, okay. Plot similarities. So mm-hmm. I was like, there was part of me which was like, oh, maybe, um, maybe this is like when I read Mansfield Park for the first time and I just didn't realise what these were references to. Like the more Peach or like Aunt Norris or all mm-hmm. of that. But I looked online, there's nothing to back that up. And then I thought, so I was like, it's not that. So then I thought maybe it's like what Elizabeth Gaskell did with North and South, where she bases the plot on Pride and Prejudice, but then adds mm-hmm. all of that, like, labour politics to it. Right. But that's not it. What I think no. is happening 
is that Harriet Beecher Stowe is taking Mansfield Park, the abolitionist text, mm-hmm. and is removing all of those references <laughs> and just <laughs> giving us the cousin loving. <laughs> so if if you don't want to read Mansfield Park with that mindset, right, what I would suggest is that you read Harriet Beecher Stowe's Pink and White Tyranny <laughs> instead. That's my... That's my suggestion. Interesting, interesting, okay. So come with me into Harriet Beecher Stowe's Mansfield Park alternate universe fan fiction, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to lay some ground rules for you with this world that we have now entered. So John Seymour's estate, where he is, that's Mansfield Park. Spindlewood, Spindleford, whatever it's called, (laughs) that's Mansfield Park. And New York is London. Mm Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the other thing you have to imagine is John is Edmund and Lily is Mar- uh, is Mary Crawford and sometimes mm-hmm. she's also Fanny. Okay. And okay. Rose is Mary Crawford and sometimes okay. Fanny. <laughs> and uh, and Harry is Henry and Edmund. And All also right. okay. and also Grace is Fanny. And also, Grace is definitely Fanny. And also Harriet Beecher Stowe is Fanny. Yeah, she's definitely so, Fanny. <laughs> everyone is everyone. Okay, <laughs> have, you, have you got it? Okay, and I should say for our listeners that Lily and John are the main characters. Grace is the spinster sister. And Harry and Rose enter the scene sort of like later on in the book as these people from John and Lily's past. Just like lost loves, if you will. And then the last thing you have to remember for this to work, for this to, because it works, right? So, but for it to really work, in this alternate universe, Mansfield Park, Edmund marries Mary Crawford and Fanny interrupts Henry and uh, Mariah's affair in London. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So I did have, I had like a bunch of quotes. I had four pages of Mansfield Park quotes. That I was oh my just going to read you to back myself up. But actually, <laughs> what I thought I'd do is I would give you like the high level points that I wanted to make. And then sure. uh, everyone can just come at me in the Facebook group and tell me that I've taken <laughs> it too far. Or it could be like a treasure hunt. And maybe you'll find oh, the yeah. bits that I mean. Maybe. I think so that point, sounds good. Point number one. I'm looking for evidence that Lily loves her cousin, Harry. Mm-hmm. You'll find it in chapter one. It's like... And Lily loved her cousin. (laughs) Okay, point two. Uh, John goes along with Lily's party, even though it threatens to ruin the neighbourhood, bring everyone's morals down, everyone's going to be corrupted. And he's like, no way, not going to do it. And then he does it. Mm -hmm. Just like Edmund in the play. Yep. Uh, Like I I mentioned, they go to London. So the scene where Rose walks in and sees Harry and Lily... That's Fanny walking in and stopping Henry and Mariah from having an affair. Okay. All right. Okay. 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 Stay with me. Grace uh, talks a lot about letters from her brother and says, like, it's a gross line where she's like, I would have a letter from my brother rather than a lover any day. Or, like, John's (laughs) the best lover, something like that. And if that ain't Fanny Price, I don't know what is. Yeah, and that, and then this is the most obvious one, okay? But when I say pages of notes that to to back this up, I I mean it. So this is the one quote, Lauren. Will you read this very obvious Mansfield Park uh, fan fiction for me? Yeah. <clears throat> why did not John fall in love with Rose? Why? I mean, why? I I want to know too. Why did not your brother fall in love with that nice girl you know of who grew up with all who grew up with you all at his very elbow and was, as everybody else could see, just the proper person for him? I mean, yeah, that's huge. Mm. John was some six years older than Rose. No, 13 years, according to chapter one. (laughs) Yeah, Harriet. Harriet did not keep that consistent. (laughs) She probably, I'm like wondering, did she write an installment? And then later she was writing that other installment and she was like, oh, damn, that's already gone to print. I mean, yeah, she JK Rowling did. She was just like, yeah. I'll make up whatever I want to say at this point. <laughs> John was some six years older than Rose. He had romped with her as a little girl, drawn her on his sled, picked up her hairpins and worn her tippet. 
when they had skated together as a girl and boy. They had made each other Christmas and New Year's presents all their lives and, to say the truth, loved each other honestly and truly. Nevertheless, John fell in love with Lily and married her. Did you ever know a case like it? Yeah, like Mansfield Park, but Edmund married Mary Crawford instead of Fanny. <laughs> yeah. Right? Anyway, so that's, I mean, my, that's solid my case. Evidence. That's my solid. case. Does this hold up in court? Should I be... I should be a lawyer. It's, <laughs> you got to close your eyes and imagine. <laughs> well, I, I have a, a case to present to the court as well. Oh, so no. <laughs> um, I can totally get down with this. I, I definitely do think that this is like a, what if Edmund married Mary Crawford scenario? For sure. Um, but then there is a point in the novel where it starts to become Wuthering Heights. Like, I haven't read completely. it, man. I don't know. Maybe when it's, I read Wuthering Heights, I'll change yeah, my mind. It's wild. Down to the language used oh. where I was like, oh, oh, Harriet. Okay, you're coming out swinging. So <laughs> here's the setup. Lily, she's married and everything, but she's gone to New York and she's visiting mm-hmm. friends. And she hears that her, I mean, he's technically her mother's cousin. Yes. She does call him her cousin though because she wants that that quick access to him mm. and it like it won't be scandalous to other people in society like oh i'm just hanging out with my cousin who i'm trying to Bye. to have an affair with yeah um so she hears that harry is in town she's like getting all up in her feels because like heathcliff and kathy they you know they they've grown up together mm. she thinks of him as her soulmate this is her lost love but she had to reject him when she was 16 because she she needed to marry someone with money. And this is what inspires him to go off and become wealthy. Yeah. But now he's back in New York and he's playing mind games with Lily for revenge. And he's doing so by flaunting this new like interest or relationship mm-hmm. with Rose Ferguson, who we were talking about earlier. So for the Bronte fans out there... This is actually very clear cut. Lily is Kathy, John is Edgar, <laughs> Harry is Heathcliff, and Rose is Isabella. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then Lily is also Lil Kathy. <laughs> Lil Lily's Lil Kathy. Lil, yeah, that's right. There's Lil Lily and Lil Kathy. But there's no Lil Linson in this one. No, there's not. Okay. That we know of. That we know of. Yeah. Um, okay. That, yeah. Okay. So- so mm. this turn of events, like, it really captured my attention. And I have a lot of quotes. I have so many quotes. I'll probably have to cut a few. But here Choose we go. Here's one. some. No. Some. You're like, here's, here's a few. Here's an extract. Here's a few. Okay. So Harry had read the story of Monte Cristo with its highly wrought plot of vengeance and had determined to avenge himself on the woman who had so tortured him and to make her feel if possible, what he had felt. So this quote, I actually just feel like Emily Bronte could have written. So it says, that woman, referring to Lily, that woman has been the evil fate of my life. Years ago, when we were both young, I loved her as honestly as a man could love a woman, and she professed to love me in return. But I was poor, and she would not marry me. At last, when a lucky stroke made me suddenly rich and I came home to seek her, I found her married, married as she owns, without love, married for wealth and ambition. I don't justify myself. I don't pretend to. But when she met me with her old smiles and her old charms and told me that she loved me still, it roused the very devil in me. I wanted revenge. I wanted to humble her. I wanted to make her suffer for all that she had made me. And I didn't care what came of it. That's Heathcliff. So the next paragraph, I think, is kind of interesting. And this was the quote that I highlighted where I was like, is this the thesis of the Mm. book? Um, And it says, and I dare say, said Rose, you told her that all she was made for was to be charming and encouraged her to live the life of a butterfly or a canary bird. Did you ever try to strengthen her principles or to educate her mind or to make her strong? On the contrary, haven't you been bowing down and adoring her for being weak? 
it seems to me that Lily is exactly the kind of woman that you men educate by the way you look on women and the way you treat them. Harry sat in silence, ruminating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Harry has a big turnaround. And then Rose says, now, it seems to me it's the most cowardly and unmanly thing in the world for men with every advantage in their hands with all the strength that their kind of education gives them, with all their opportunities, a thousand to our one to hunt down those poor, those poor little silly women whom society keeps stunted and dwarfed for their special amusement. I thought we were headed for a scandal Mm -hmm. at this part of the book, and I really actually would have welcomed that. Um, But instead, Harry really takes Rose's words to heart and Mm. changes his ways and he realizes that he needs to be with a sensible woman like rose and just you know forget all about lily that's really the best course of action for him yeah which is what happens in the real mansfield park so you know yeah (laughs) yeah it's it happens it's just sort of like it deflates the drama (laughs) oh 100 percent. and you go oh the ending of this book is weird it's really strange um, because like everyone just sort of goes on with their lives and then like Harriet Beecher Stowe pulls the reader aside to basically say that women don't need rights men just need to wise up and treat them better and like no one should ask for a divorce while we're while we're Mm -hmm. talking about it yeah because like if men could get a divorce this is her reasoning then they would just marry and discard silly little women like Lily and um, yeah and then and Lily dies but Lily doesn't die like immediately I thought Lily was gonna die I did actually think Lily was gonna die this entire time I was reading it I thought she might die in childbirth but she has to like Harriet really she can't just kill her like she can't she can't just kill her in childbirth such a horrible thing to say but I mean she has to like really just hammer in that she's a shit mum as well (laughs) yeah it's like it kind of gives you more of the like it just kind of tells you how the rest of her life goes kind of like in a blase fashion honestly it's like yeah then she had kids and she was a terrible mom and she died so there you go and you're like oh okay that's interesting but Um, it's fine because her daughter is hot mm -hmm. but like her dad but a good person yeah yeah hot but good baby that's all, that's yeah. all we can pray for. That's what it I pray for every night wash. before bed. I put my little hands together and I'm like, dear God, make me hot but good. We hope he has that not yet. <laughs> all those problematic mothers who smoke cigarettes. I miss Lily cigarettes. Um, oh, yeah, that was a good... I liked that scene. When, um, I did too. Uh, another Harry, Harry Danforth, and he's like, yeah, I gave her some cigarettes. They're probably up her skirt right there. <laughs> <laughs> and John's on the balcony and he's like, oh, I believe that man said he gave my wife some cigarettes and they're up her skirt. There is a like a reading of this book where it's like, listen, people are not going to change after marriage. This mm-hmm. is what it is. Like you're marrying this person or you're not. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I do. Uh, that's a very modern reading. Obviously, Harriet and I are not on the same page. It's funny because like I don't. I don't disagree with everything in Pink and White Tyranny, but it's so hard to tell what's the joke. Like, I wonder Mm -hmm. if I'm agreeing with all of the bits where Harriet's like, (laughs) whatever. And I'm like, yeah, sick. (laughs) Yeah. Here's the thing about Harriet. You know, she's just a mystery wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in cash. Just like uh, just like our friend Erica Jane. Yeah. I was yeah. I knew I knew Erica Jane was gonna come up today. I've been like on the edge of my seat waiting for it. <laughs> now we're not quite finished with um our cash wrapped Harriet Beecher Stowe just yet. Uh she's a featured background player. She's been downgraded from Erica in Lauren's last comments with Sutton mm. in, in mine. <laughs> uh so she'll be in our next two episodes about performative activism and abolitionist writing. Next week, we're going to be discussing Lydia Maria Child, and the following week, we'll talk about Harriet Jacobs. Stowe inadvertently brought these two together when she refused to provide any assistance to Jacobs with her book, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Now, Lydia Maria Child was an abolitionist and author of the short story, The Quadroons, which 
we think is a really interesting pairing alongside incidents. So, you know, if you've got the time, those are both free and available online. You should totally do that. Um, I also think it's like kind of an interesting primer text to passing by Mm. Nella Larson, which we will be discussing later on this season. Now, if you would like to weigh in on the quadroons or pink and white tyranny, if you guys want to like take a look at this book and tell us what it's all about, we're we're unsure. Guys, <laughs> I had don't some really interesting thoughts. If you find those oh. Mansfield Park quotes at me, come on, I want to hear. Let, know. Let us know. Um, you can also uh, check out some of the pictures of my Harriet Beecher Stowe house trip. Or check out the reading list for the rest of this season. Um, you can do that all on the internet. Hannah, where can the good people find us on there? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And most importantly, guys, you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, wherever you get your usual literary fix. And I just want to do a special like shout out, like thank you to everyone who has, you know, recommended our book to, you know, independent bookshops or librarians. That's amazing. That helps so much. Um, Also, big thank you to everyone at the Harriet Beecher Stowe House in Cincinnati. Please check out their website. Um, Look into getting a membership. They do some really, really awesome, awesome online events. 